Open your Bibles to Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is where we're going to be this morning. It's, it's come time for the last psalm of our summer in the Psalms. We'll come back to Psalm 41 next year. We'll end the Psalms here with, with Psalm 40, and we'll be going into 1 Samuel next week. So buckle up. It's going to be fun, all right? Why are you here? Not just here in this worship service, but why are you here in this world? What are you doing here? What is your purpose? For what reason did God save you? If in fact you consider yourself to be a member of the body of Christ, to be inside Christ, to be following after Christ, to be one of His disciples, why did God save you? We have men and women in the church, I mean, all over the world, meandering through life, floating to this thing and to that thing, dealing with all kinds of deep-seated spiritual distress. And if pressed, they couldn't tell you the reason they exist. They might come up with something in relation to their job, or the school that they're going to, or what currently they are doing. But if you press them even further, why do you exist? Many could not tell you. They don't understand their purpose in life. It's beyond, actually, something that a career can fix. You can't put a job in front of them. And tell them this is your purpose and that that would fix their problems. In fact, some of them meandering through life, not knowing what their purpose is, are retired. They've gone past the working age and they're now retired and they still don't know what their purpose is in life. It actually affects people of all ages. Married, unmarried, young, old, working, unemployed, retired. It's a question that plagues us all from time to time. Why Am I here? For what purpose do I exist? In our passage this morning, David has come to the end of God's discipline of his life. He's been punished for his sin, and he's come to the end. And he's experienced some kind of salvation from the Lord. We're not exactly sure what it is, though we might be able to guess. But he's experienced some kind of salvation from the Lord. And in this psalm... He's going to expose, I think, some profound insights for both discipline and deliverance. Why it happened. Why he is saved. Let's read Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. 
I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is more in this text than could be unpacked in maybe a thousand lifetimes. But we pray, Father, that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for all that's contained within that you would open this text before us, that we could understand it, that we could apply it to our lives. Change us from the inside out with your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So far, David has gone on quite a journey up to this point. You'll remember last week that we saw Psalm 38... Psalm 39 and Psalm 40 are all connected by one central theme, and that is that David is in the midst of suffering through a great trial. He's, he's gone through a great trial as a result of his own sin, he says. So this psalm and these psalms have shown a progression of David almost like a good trilogy. If you ever sat down in front of a good trilogy, it's, it's almost progressing a little bit like that. In Psalm 38, David is suffering under the discipline of the Lord. And so you can look back at Psalm 38. It's probably just a page, maybe, in your Bible. And you'll see there in verse 1 where he says in, in Psalm 38, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. It even sounded like David might have been physically ill. Like he, he might have gotten a sickness because of his sin that the Lord had inflicted him with. Look at verse 3 of that same Psalm, Psalm 38. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. But what became clear 
is that this was for his sin. It was for a sin that he had committed that the Lord is disciplining him. Look at verse 4. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. And in addition to the illness, he also had what's kind of typical in a lot of the Psalms. He had a lot of enemies that were surrounding him. Look at verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. And then finally, we get to the end of Psalm 38. And there in verse 18, he says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. And so what we saw there in Psalm 38 was that the point of the Lord's discipline of him is that the Lord is bringing him to a point of repentance. Precisely the reason for his discipline is to bring him to the point where he confesses his sins and his iniquities, and he confesses them before the Lord. This is one aspect of divine discipline that the Lord brings to us. He, he brings it to us for the purpose of our confession of sin, confessing the part we played in it. But then last week, in Psalm 39, that even after that confession... David is still in the midst of suffering. It's not like David has just been plucked clean and, and, and finally, okay, I've got this off my chest and now everything is okay. In fact, in Psalm 39, it gets about as dark as it possibly could be. If, if, if this is a trilogy, we're in the second movie here where things start to get really dark. Luke's had his hand severed off. He's learned who his father is. Han is frozen. He's learned of all the... All the Heroes are in peril. That's Star Wars, in, in case y'all, like some of you weren't tracking. I was like, man, let me pick a movie, a trilogy that they'll all know, and apparently not. David ends the psalm with that line, Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Can I smile one time before I die? God, you're going to have to turn your attention away from me if, you're gonna, if I'm going to be able to smile before I die. It's about as dark as it gets. But he continues to suffer, even, and he even tells, us in, he tells God in verse 11, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So when last we left our hero in Psalm 39, he was in the deepest pit of despair. But we saw that the Lord has a reason even for the deepest pit that he has David in, that pit of despair. We saw that in verse 7 of Psalm 39. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So over the last two weeks, we've seen that in the midst of discipline and suffering, God has an intention on taking his people, namely David at this point, through that pit of despair. The first is correction. Just like a father would discipline his son, it's correction. It's meant to bring a reckoning of his sin. He's, he's confessing it. He's understanding what it is. He's repenting and turning from it. But as we saw last week, there's a second reason for that, and it's dependence. Bringing him to the bottom of the pit, he's got nowhere else to turn, and he realizes, look, Lord, my hope is in you. Where else can I go? You're the only one that can take me from this pit. But as we look at our text this morning, things will begin to look up for David, as you've kind of seen. 
And what we're going to see here is that even in the deliverance, in both the suffering and the deliverance, and the connection between those two, God has at the very least three purposes that David is going to outline here. And the first, God's purpose in deliverance is missional. His purpose is missional. Let's understand something first about the book of Psalms in general. And this can be a little bit confusing if you've never studied the Psalms or you've never... Uh, if this is your first foray into the Psalms. Remember, these Psalms are somewhat independent of one another. They're hymns. They're, they're songs of, of praise or remorse or lamentation or, or all kinds of different things, but they're, they're, they're songs that are to be used in a worship service to the Lord. And so they're somewhat independent of the other Psalms, similar to the way Amazing Grace is independent than from grace greater than our sin. The two are are independent hymns, yet if you looked in a modern hymnal, you're going to find them close to each other, probably, because they're linked by a consistent theme, and that is the concept of grace. Both grace, grace pervades both of those hymns. You could even turn to the back of a hymnal, and you could look in the subject index, and you could find their grace and it would direct you to a section where you'd find more hymns that were about grace. Similarly, what we find in this ancient Hebrew hymnal is that it's arranged with the psalms closely associated with one another. In in this case, we've seen Psalm 38, where David's being disciplined for his sin. We see Psalm 39, where he's in a crisis over that discipline, and now Psalm 40, where he's being delivered from discipline. Now, there's a question, were these three psalms composed back to back to back? Was David talking about the same subject when he was being disciplined in 38 and 39 and then delivered in 40? There's no way we could possibly ever know the answer to that question. But what we do know is that whoever arranged these psalms, whoever put them together, intended for you to see the connection between 38 39 and 40. They were arranged by common theme. That being said, if I was a betting man, I would say that all of these things are intimately related because of how neatly they fit together. And what we're going to see in a second, how similarly he refers to things that was mentioned in the previous Psalms. So it's clear from the outset in Psalm 40 that David's been delivered. He's been taken from some sort of depressive state, some sort of suffering that he's been in. But it seems pretty clear from the previous psalm that it's very related to a very similar thing he faced in Psalm 39. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 40 here. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Now this is similar to the question that he asked God at the end of the previous psalm. Look in verse 12 at Psalm 39, verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. I hold not uh, your peace, and hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. And then in the very first verse of this psalm that we're in today, he says, he heard my cry. He answered me. He came to my rescue. So it appears that Psalm 40 is following right on the heels of Psalm 38 and 39. David has experienced some sort of salvation. Now, it's possible 
that David has lost some military battles, and he goes back to the drawing board, and he sees sin in his own life, and he thinks, I'm being punished by God. And, and maybe he is being punished. It's possible that that's what's going on. But it's more likely that either his suffering is, uh, is, is physical, and in Psalm 40 he's celebrating a physical healing, like he's actually been healed of his disease, or it's a spiritual or psychological healing where he's been depressed. We've all had that feeling in life, haven't we, where we feel like God is very close to us, and it's a very intimate relationship, and then haven't we had those times where God seems far away, where he seems like he's withdrawing himself from us? And it's a situation we can't really explain to anybody else as we talk to them. But we know it when we feel it. And it's possible, and I think probable, that David is, is experiencing one of those two things, or both, a physical healing and a spiritual closeness to the Lord that he's now feeling that he didn't before. When the psalmists use a phrase like pit of destruction, like what we see there in verse 2, what they're normally talking about is a place where the dead go to be separated from God for all time. In a sense, where God will no longer hear their voice anymore. Now, normally that word is sheol, that, the grave. That's not what David's talking about. He's talking about, I've gone to the pit of destruction, the pit of despair, the place where God no longer pays attention to me anymore. Where he doesn't hear me any longer. Where I'm dead, and I could say as much as I want, and my prayers will never reach past the ceiling. And so that's why I think David is experiencing some sort of distance from the Lord that he knows is a reaction to his sin. And he understands the deep conviction that he has for the, the sin that remains within. And he feels that distance from the Lord. And he, he cannot understand why the Lord doesn't come to him and why the Lord's distant. But he knows that he's in a pit of despair. He's feeling that sense of depression that we've all felt from time to time. But David has now been spared. He's now been taken from that place. And his relationship with the Lord has been restored again. Uh, but look at the result of his salvation in verse 3. He says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Look at verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. We've talked about discipline being for the purpose of correction, for the purpose of bringing us to depend on the Lord. But we should add to that, God's purpose is that discipline and deliverance from discipline would be used for the glory of His name. It's missional. Its intention is to be told to others. See what David says? He, that is God, put a new song in my mouth. In other words, what David is saying is, the salvation that I have from the Lord is intended to be told to others. This is a testimony that is meant to be shared with others. His relief, whether it's spiritual or, or, or physical or maybe both, it's so that he can tell others of the goodness of God. 
Here's what it means to be rescued by God. Here's how I know He's good because I've experienced it myself. I can testify to His goodness. Remember back in Psalm 39 how careful David was to complain about his discipline in front of others. Look at Psalm 39 verse 1. He said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. He's not going to use this temporary position of struggle that he's in to voice his complaints before the Lord because what he fears, and no matter how bad he feels, he fears that the people around him, the wicked people that would hear him complain about his situation, would use it as justification to go before the Lord and say, I knew you were bad. I knew you were the kind of God that does that and punishes your own children. Look at David. That's the reason I don't come to you in worship. And David didn't want to do that. David cares more than anything about the name of the Lord and how it is preserved in front of the people. And so his heartbeat right now is that the Lord's name not be profaned. And so likewise, when he is saved... He is going to proclaim that far and wide and scream it from the rooftops that he's been saved. Look at verse 9 of our psalm, Psalm 40, verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. It's clear to him that God's first purpose in his deliverance, first of all in his suffering, but then actually delivering him is missional. He's supposed to tell everyone about this. But second, God's purpose in deliverance is obedience. God's purpose in deliverance is obedience. Look at verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So there's a lot going on in these three little verses here, six to eight, that you might not think about on the surface, but that David is getting at. First of all, David is recognizing that in the midst of his discipline, no amount of sacrifice he could have ever brought to the Lord would have ever relieved the discipline that he was under. He couldn't have brought a bull or a goat large enough or clean enough to ever relieve him from this discipline. And he says that right at, at the gate. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. I've tried. I've given you the finest goats the best bulls, and you just did not care one iota about the bulls and the goats. However, he says, you have given me an open ear. Now, he doesn't mean that God has an open ear that he has lent to David. That's not what he means. He means that God has given him the ability to hear, the ability to understand, the ability to perceive. He literally says, the way it's literally written is, you've dug out my ears. You cleaned out the wax. They were stopped up. You, you scooped out the wax in my ear. 
The Lord's given him the ability to listen, and by that, he means the ability to obey. That's what he means. So he's peeling back the layers of what he's saying here. He, He says that if it's obedience that God wants over the bulls and the goats, then it's obedience he will get, because you've given me now an ear to hear you and to obey. He says, he says look, look at what he says now. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So the first layer here that we're peeling back is that God is not interested in David's empty religion. And he's come to understand that. In the midst of his suffering, he's, God is not interested in him just coming to worship, bringing the finest bulls and goats, and offering them. It's not in his in in God's interest at all. What he wants is David's obedience. He wants his heart. That's what he's asking for. We spent a good deal of time talking about this subject both here and on Wednesday night and why having the law written on our heart is of tremendous importance in the Scriptures. And you will see this time and again reiterated over and over through not only the law, but also in the prophets, that the law needs to be written on our hearts. David's looking back at passages in Scripture, passages in the law, and and mainly what he's focusing on is one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. You know where it is? It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 Verse 4. Scrawl that verse reference on the inside of your brain. Tattoo it on the inside of your eyelids so you always remember that it's there. It is, it is Jesus even identifies it as the most important passage in Scripture. And you'll recognize it when you hear it. It's called the Shema. Shema means hear because of how it starts. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So that's what Moses is telling them. That's what God through Moses is telling them. This is important. When Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He recites this. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang the whole Old Testament, basically. The Law and the Prophets. So basically, these are the two most important things you could ever remember. And the first is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he even says at the end of this, in verse 6, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So this is a commandment given to the children of Israel that they are to obey. If they get this... All the rest of the law will follow right after it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. But you see, there's a problem. And actually, Moses exposes the problem in Deuteronomy. Just a few chapters later, in chapter 29, Moses, in 29 verses 2 to 4, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all the servants of his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see 
or ears to hear. See the problem? All this, God has done for them. He's done all these things. He brought you out of the land of Egypt. He brought you across waters that just miraculously parted in front. You walked across, turned around, the waters came back and killed Pharaoh and his army. He took you out of the land after having done all ten plagues. He brought you through the wilderness and allowed you to persevere for 40 years. He fed you day and night for 40 years in the wilderness. I watched a show called Alone, where people are just dropped out in the wilderness and they just have to live with nothing but 10 items. And they're tapping out after 29 days. They're like, I can't do it. I'd tap out after one. God allowed you to persevere for 40 years. He fed you day and night. It's a miracle. You've seen it. Now you would think if he said, all right, after all that, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They would say, all right, I'm there. But you can't. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So one chapter later, in Deuteronomy 30, Moses gives the solution in verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You understand what he's saying? Deuteronomy 6, you need to do this. Jesus, the whole Old Testament hangs on that. But you can't. God has to give you a heart to actually want to do it. So they have, they have to have a new heart so that Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, actually becomes something that they want to do. So do you understand what David is doing now? After his discipline, after he's, he's had his little bit with discipline, he comes before the Lord. And he's understanding that the result of his discipline was designed to bring him to obedience. And what is he saying to the Lord? You didn't delight in sacrifice. You wanted my obedience. And so obedience you're going to get. I have a new heart, baby. I can tell. It's right here. I feel it. You have replaced it. I know it. I am never, ever again going to depart from doing your will. In this very psalm, he already says that his heart is corrupt again. That he can't do it because there's evils all around. His sins are more than the hairs on his head. I, I, I realize that I can't do it. So when David even writes this, he, he's, he's a second layer here. He's saying, I am going to obey like none have obeyed before. I'm going to obey and give you the sacrifice that you want, the obedience of my life. I'm going to give you a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Because that's what you want. You want my obedience. But as much as David might be convinced that he should obey the Lord from here on? It's not within his ability to do so. As I said, he's about to say, my iniquity is more than the hairs on my head. Which for me is getting less and less. Thank, thank you. So if we're understanding then this psalm through the lens of Calvary, like we've been talking about for the last many weeks, then it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that Jesus alone 
can fulfill the mandate of this. Everything that David is anticipating that he wants, that he wants to provide, he wants to bring to the Lord all of his obedience, and yet he can't. Jesus alone is the one that can truly delight to do the will of God. Jesus alone can say, as it's mentioned in verse 7, that the scrolls were actually written about him. Jesus alone had the ability to perfectly obey And though the blood of bulls and goats would never suffice to pay for sin, Jesus gave the sacrifice to end all sacrifices by His obedience. What David is hoping that he can bring to the Lord, what he knows the Lord wants, and it would be a fulfillment of all that Moses had told the people of Israel they needed, David is also realizing he can't do. But he knows that's what's necessary. Jesus is the one coming along that says, I can do it. I am going to do it. Now, I know, many of you in here, I've talked with you, you're kind of like, I don't don't know if that's really the way we should be reading this psalm. It seems complicated, complex. I don't don't know that I would have gotten there normally. But remember, this is exactly how the author of Hebrews tells you you are supposed to read this psalm. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 to 10, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Does that sound familiar? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. He says Christ came into the world and said this. This is a citation from Psalms. He's citing David. David says this. And now he says, Christ came into the world and he said this, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These offerings, according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus perfectly obeyed. This psalm was written about him. He's the one that had to actually fulfill what was written by David in this psalm. He's the one who had to perfectly obey. But when he laid down his life, he didn't get from God what he rightfully deserved for his perfect obedience. He didn't get the righteousness that David is longing for. That's not what he got. Instead, what he got was all the suffering for your iniquity and for my iniquity. On him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. What he suffered for was your sin and my sin. He didn't get all the righteous rewards. No, he, he got God's wrath laid on his shoulder. The wrath stored up for you and me that we might actually receive all that David longed for. All the things that David knew that would come to him for perfect obedience. 
All of God paying attention to him, pulling him from the pit of the mire, uh, the pit of destruction. All, all the blessings that would come by being included into God's family, all of those blessings that would come by his righteousness and his obedience came to him not because of his righteousness and obedience. It came to him because of Christ's righteousness and obedience. All of that was a free gift. It was given to him. And it's given to all who, like David, confess their iniquity before the Lord. But, because Jesus has, has done this for us, everyone who is in Christ is born again. Christ not only died for your sin, and not only suffered the wrath that you deserve, but what He gave to you on the back end was a gift. And that gift was a new heart. It was a heart that actually cared to obey. It actually heard God's commands and actually desired to obey God. It's a heart that has been swapped out. Your old heart has been pulled out of your chest and a new heart has been given to you by God. Exactly what Moses was saying that you needed has been accomplished by Christ. Exactly what David is saying, I now have it. Oh wait, maybe I don't. Jesus then comes in and not only pays the penalty for your sin, but then affords you the ability to have a new heart for God to replace your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that you might actually hear the Lord, love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and obey. And it's all because of Christ's work on the cross that we're given this new heart. It's an act of His generous grace and mercy. It's His, it's his mercy in your salvation. And because He did it to you, you then go forward by His grace and His mercy to tell others what has happened. So do you see what's happening here? David is saying, you've rescued me from the pit. And I realize one reason you've rescued me is a, is a missional end to this. I need to tell everyone what's happened. The problem is he still has that heart of stone. You've rescued me from the pit and I realize what you want from me is obedience, not sacrifice. You're tired of empty religion. You want my obedience. You want my heart. But he still has that heart of stone. But Christ comes along and fulfills the law perfectly and grants to you his righteousness, swapping out your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And now you can be changed to obey God and actually please him. But not only that, you can actually turn to the nations and proclaim him as Lord. But lastly... God's purpose in deliverance is humility. God's purpose in deliverance is humility. Remember, David's not out of the woods yet when, he, when he, what he's realized is what he says in verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy for me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Where before he was in the pit of despair, thinking that God had banished him forever from his presence, now he realizes the abundance of God's mercy to him. He's realized, you're never going to leave me. That's your promise to me. You're never going to leave me. Which is great, because in verse 12, he says that he still has evil around him. He still has iniquities that overtake him more than the hairs on his head. And, and worst of all, he still has enemies that really want him to die. So he needs the Lord to put them all to shame, basically. But look at the result of all that suffering and discipline and ultimately the salvation that God has brought to him in verse 16. 
But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of, for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Remember, this is the king of Israel, right? This is the king of Israel writing this. Now, remember, Israel occupied the most expensive real estate in the known world at the time. And he is the king over it. But on the other side of suffering, David is restored to this place of where? Prominence? No. Being poor and needy. That's what it's brought him to. A place of poverty and need. Someone needing God to take note of him and deliver him. And, and more than that, he sees God as the one who is great. He says, may those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. David has been restored to the role of the creature. And in his life, God has been restored to the role of the creator. There is this relationship that has been righted now. Creator, creature. There's no question about which part I play in this. I think this is a crucial lesson that is more difficult than it appears on the surface. We are the creature. God is the creator. Now on the surface, everyone agrees to that. Hopefully. On the surface, it's very easy to agree to that. God's the creator, I'm the creature. Yeah, what's, what's wrong with that? But the more you dig, the more uncomfortable we get with it. God being the creator means he does whatever he pleases. And that means that he has the right to use our lives however he wills. That's where it starts to get difficult, doesn't it? That's where it can get a little bit frustrating. Because that means that some people, some of his people, will endure tremendous amounts of suffering for their whole life and die at an early age even. And others will live at, in comparative peace. And that's his, at his discretion. Because he's the creator and we're the creature. That he gets to determine how that fleshes itself out. What I do and what I don't do. God being the creator means that all of this, the world that you see, everything from the trees and the animals to you and me and everyone in between, all of this, everything in creation, the furthest reaches that the James Webb telescope can take pictures of and even beyond that, all of this, is about His praise and His greatness, not ours. You have to come to terms with the fact that your salvation 
is about God's name, not yours. And, and, and in actuality, that, that is, I think, the struggle that we're in for the rest of our lives. Coming to terms with the fact that our salvation is actually not fundamentally about us. It's about Him. Remember in Ezekiel 20, verse 44, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord our God. You understand what he's saying? The reason that I'm not going to punish you the way that I should punish you is not because of you. It's because of my name. That's what he does. Psalmist is going to say in Psalm 103, he lives in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. The reason that he didn't punish them is because of his name. So we live in a world right now, a culture that starts sentences with how could a loving God, dot, dot, dot. How could a loving God? As if to say that how could a loving God be, be not bound to love in the way that I define love? It's as if I could bind Him in some way to some characteristic that I vaguely know about Him, that I could bind Him to certain action that I deem necessary because that's the justice that I perceive. How could a loving God Maybe we should ask questions like, what kind of creature rebels against its creator? What kind of creature tells its creator what it thinks the creator should do? Does that seem to fit in the role of creature-creator? Let me ask you something. When, when you create something that doesn't fulfill the purpose for which you created it, what do you do with it? You scrap it back to the drawing board, don't you? Because you intuitively understand the role of creator and creature. What if that thing you created turns back and says, how could a loving creator ever throw me in the trash? I'm sorry, what is your role? For David, it's been restored. Because David has uncovered the reason that he exists. And the reason that you and I exist. Is to worship God. That is the reason you were created. Men, you have a purpose. You have a God-given, God-oriented task he has given to you a purpose. He has replaced your heart of stone if you're in Christ and given you a heart of flesh that you can obey Him, which means you can actually move toward this purpose. And that is to lead your family in the worship of God. That is your purpose as laid out in Ephesians 5, 25-33. That is your purpose. To not only worship God yourself, but to lead your family in the worship of God. To bring your whole family to heal under God's authority and His commands. That is your purpose. 
You've been given it. But you understand, God does not want your empty religion. So many men will continue to come here on church, to church on Sundays uh, across the world, here and everywhere else. They will hear the word preached, they will read it, they will see it, they will go home and pay no attention to how that affects their family. They won't desire in any way to make sure that their kids are living in accordance with the word that's laid out here, to make sure that our family's values and our priorities are centered on God's word, to make sure that we're reading it, that we're understanding it, that we're teaching it to our children. They will do nothing of the sort but come here faithfully every Sunday. Can you not understand from David, he does not want your empty religion, but your heart. Ladies, you have a purpose, a God-given, God-directed purpose for which you exist, and it's to lead your family in the worship of God in coordination to and submission to your husband. Yes, we're that kind of church. That is right there in Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Kids, children, listen to me. I know all your parents, okay? Listen to me. If you haven't listened to another thing that I've said, listen to this. You have a purpose. You have a God-given, God-directed, divine purpose in this world. You might think to yourself, what is my purpose in this world? I'm going to give it to you. You ready? It is to obey, honor, and submit to your parents as God's authority over you. All of your parents just said, Amen. <laughs> that is right there in Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. You just tattoo, write down Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Because if you cannot learn to submit to your parents, how could you ever learn to submit to godly authority? That is your role. That is what God has given to you. You may think, I want to be an engineer one day. I want to be an athlete one day. I want to be a this. I want to be a that. No, not first. God's prerogative for you is to submit to and honor your parents. Single people, you have a purpose. A divine purpose. You have a function in this world. It's given to you by God. Your freedom from material sorry, from marital anxieties allows you to be anxious about the things of the Lord, to be holy in body and spirit in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now you might say to yourself, that's weird. That one sounded strange. That comes straight from 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35 as Paul is addressing single people. You understand? What's being said to us, to everyone, regardless of what area of life you fall into, all the responsibilities that are given to us in Scripture are all placing us in the role of creature and God in the role of creator. Everything in our lives are to be subsumed under His authority. They're all turning His attention, our attention to, to the worship and praise and adoration of God that He is due and that He deserves. And you might tell yourself, well, that seems pretty egotistical of God to just create a bunch of creatures that He demands that would worship Him. Not if He's truly worthy of worship. It's egotistical for you to do it. Because you're not that awesome. 
It's not egotistical for him to do it because he's actually praiseworthy. You understand what he's giving to you in turning your heart's affection toward him is all of the joy and all of the, the greatness that you could ever imagine. He's actually giving it to you in a gift. So turn to him in praise instead of spurning his advances. Brothers and sisters, you have to realize that your purpose in this life is to bring God glory and to direct others' attention toward God by telling them of His greatness. But you understand that for those whose hearts are truly turned towards God, whose hearts have been exchanged, who have been given a heart of flesh, there's a promise that comes with that. A promise that the Creator of all takes thought of you. Knows you doesn't let you into the pit of despair and let you fall there to the bottom, but actually plants you firmly on the rock of Christ. That He takes note of you, that He cares for you. And that when it comes to suffering, He will not delay. His deliverance of you in Christ is only the first sign of His care because there's coming a day when sin and death will be no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word to us. It's more than we could unpack in a thousand lifetimes, and I pray that as your word is carried to us, that it penetrate deeply into our hearts, for those hearts of stone that are still here, we pray that you would do the miraculous work through your spirit of breaking that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. I pray that we would see the gospel clearly and understand what Christ has done for us and understand what our purpose is to bring all things into submission to your name because it's all about you, it's not about me. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.